Hey everyone, Mike here. Welcome to the Around the Crease Podcast. This is episode 49, and today is a great one. And yes, I know I'm biased. Today we have a couple guests. In addition to my co-host, as always, Michael Ward, we're going to welcome Blythewood High School out of South Carolina, head coach Jason Kazupe. He's going to talk with us a little bit about the state of the sport in South Carolina, how it's growing, and what's going on, and also give us a little bit of layout of the the dynamic of the state. And then later in the show, we're going to welcome on Lee Roggenberg. He's the senior writer at FloridaLacrosseNews.com. And I don't know anybody in the state who knows more about Florida high school lacrosse than Lee. So he's going to give us a little bit of a prediction, outline some of the players to watch, and definitely we're going to talk about some of the teams to watch. And then the final segment of today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about bad behavior. Michael, Lee, and I could talk a little bit about social media actions. And then we also kind of get into a couple articles that we've read lately about how officials are starting to become a little bit more rare and a little bit more challenging to find to officiate our sport and other sports as well. So without any further ado, let's get into it. First off, like kind of for the people who may not know, kind of talk a little bit about what um, the landscape of lacrosse in South Carolina Sure. Uh, South Carolina is interesting. Uh, when I first came down here um, and saw, you know, the lacrosse game um, being played in the South, North Carolina is where my first experience with that was when I went to Queens. And I had an opportunity. I ended up I, – I got hurt, unfortunately, my freshman year at Queens. So I had an opportunity to coach uh, in North Carolina – and I saw that the game was absolutely exploding and it was everywhere you could see. And when I ended up transferring to USC and after I graduated and I wanted to get into coaching, um, I, I went to Blythewood. I ended up getting hired on and got to see firsthand how South Carolina has transitioned into lacrosse. And it, it was a little bit slower of a catch in South Carolina, um, for some reason, it, it went North Carolina, skipped over South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, and it exploded everywhere there, but didn't catch on too much in South Carolina. Um, but over the last couple of years, um, it started to grow a lot. Um, the big thing here that I think differs from the other places is um, lack of youth programs. And it's being expanded on. I know here in so South Carolina can basically be broken up into the upstate, the Midlands and uh, low country. And there was a lot of youth programs in the low country, but they were kind of lacking in the Midlands area, which is where Blythewood is and lacking in the upstate. But as of recent years, um, those have started to pick up. I know here in the Midlands, uh, Victory Lacrosse is a club program that is running uh, youth programs. It's running all the way up through high school teams um, in the upstate. They got they got programs started um, all around Greenville, especially because um, Greenville has, uh, for one reason or another, has a lot of professional players that actually live up there and are starting programs. And then the low country, they have teams like the loggerheads that have been a staple in South Carolina pretty much since lacrosse has been around here. So it's growing. It's uh, 
growing, unfortunately, at a slower rate. But I think in the last, at least since I started coaching here, two years, it's uh, really picked up. Um, kids aren't really interested in baseball or um, anymore. They're yeah. they're you know they're not really as interested in soccer. They want something with a physical contact, but also has a bunch of sports rolled into one and something that they can really grasp and make their own. Um, and a lot of the parents are reflecting that too. You know, they wish that this sport was around when they were kids is a lot of the comments that we get. So um, it's growing and it's uh, in the last two years growing at a more rapid rate than it has been. And it's thanks to a lot of the club programs that are starting the youth programs now. And um, so I think because of that in the next few years, you'll really see a surge in just the level of talent that's coming out of the state and just the overall number of players that are out there playing the game in the state. I think it's going to go up drastically in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. And I'm looking because I'm, I think last year was last year, the first year that the state had done a five A and a four A champion. Cause I think previous years, I only had one champion, but then last year, obviously they had the, the two divisions. They had they had five A and four A um, before that. Uh, the the SCH the SCHSL um, the H- South Carolina High School League mm-hmm. uh, runs the five A and the four A. They redid how they um, do the divisions within the state. Um, so last year's four A championship, you had. Um, you had Oceanside Academy, which is uh, a new school, brand new school uh, down in the lower state and Greenville, um, which is a 4A school in the upstate. They played and that Oceanside Academy, I mean, they're they're awesome. They're loaded with talent. And that's uh, it's kind of telling to how the state is divided up. There's um, military installations in a lot of places here. So we get a lot of um, northern transplants that come down and know about the sport and start playing. And that's where you'll see a lot of these kids come from. A, a lot of them were born in South Carolina, but all their parents are pretty much from up north. And down in um, in the lower state portion, you have a lot of people that retire down there, end up starting families, and they already know about the sport down there. Um, but that's, that's how you can get a school that's in their first year, but you have a lot of kids that already know what they're doing. Um, so we had that for four a, and then the five a championship, um, you have just bigger schools is really how it's, how it's divided. And you had Dutch fork versus Wando in the five a championship last year. And Wando has been, um, kind of the leader of lacrosse in the state but we're hoping you know with our level of talent that we have this year a lot of the schools around here that have stepped up with their talent um, we're hoping at some point you know we'll be able to uh, dethrone them as a as a champion put somebody new in there Um, I know the school I coach we have some kids that are just really committed to um, the end goal of getting a championship. And you, you see that with the commitments that are coming out. We have several schools in the area that are sending kids to college. Um, I've, I've talked to several coaches in the last couple of days that have kids 
committing left and right to schools all over the country, which is um, just really telling where the direction of the sport is going in the state. Do you think that's just because of the, the focus on the youth programs and kind of building them so players are getting acclimated to the sport at younger ages? Yeah, I, that, I would say um, recently, you know, you you would come to a high school program and it was it was difficult because you were teaching uh, juniors and seniors who had been playing the game. And then you were teaching freshmen and sophomores that have never played the game before. And now what you're seeing is you get kids in high school that have already been playing for two or three years and you don't have to teach them the fundamentals. So yeah, I think it is a testament to the youth programs in the area. I think um, the more that the more, um, you know, reception that they get to the public, uh, the better our programs will be overall. Um, I know locally here we have uh, Lexington high school. They're sending five kids to college, um, I know AC Flora, which is a 4A school around here. They're a powerhouse. They're sending a couple kids to college. Uh, we got kids all over the place. Blythewood last year and in years past have sent, you know, multiple kids to college. So it's getting bigger. And, you know, it is a testament to the youth programs in the area, just getting more uh, recognition. Yeah, I think probably people might recognize uh, Mitch Russell as a name out of South Carolina. Obviously, he went on uh, to Duke um, right. to play, but he, you know, he played at Fort Mill in 2014, not that long ago <laughs> right. of, a, of a graduate. So, you know, it's not like the state doesn't have any recognizable names that have ever come out of it uh, as well. Um, and I know Wando's put a few, put a few out there. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I was looking, kind of looking at the, the champions. I was like, Wando's won four straight, and you had mentioned kind of that, you know, the concentration of power, like, but it seems to be kind of expanding a little bit. Like, what do you kind of attribute Wando's success to over the course of the last? I mean, I'm looking at, I think they've won all but one championship since 2012, and Fort Mill kind of slipped in there, but even Wando made the championship game that year. So, They've been a right. part of it every year since 2012. So what do you kind of attribute that advantage that they've had for the last few years? Well, they, first of all, they have a amazing coaching staff down there. and uh, But outside of the coaching staff, what you'll see at Wando that uh, you're starting to see at other schools but don't see quite yet is they have, you know, 100-plus kids trying to go out for their team. Mm -hmm. They have such a vast interest in the sport, and you know their school of kid like their school doubles almost the size of Blythewood, and Blythewood's not a small school by any means. But they have so many kids that are interested in the sport that they just can pull from the best of the best, and that's really what's been fueling the machine, if you will. They have that vast interest, but also. Um, it's it's the kids that are there take such a great interest in the sport. I mean, I I know they had two kids on their team last year. I don't know their names, but those two kids went all the way up to Pennsylvania to play for Dukes, which is a notable team from the part of country that I'm from up there. Yeah. And that takes a lot of commitment. And if you have kids that are playing on the elite team in Pennsylvania from South Carolina, that's kind of a testament to what kind of kids come out of that program. Yeah. 
and obviously it takes a lot of dedication for the parents and the families um, or the players and the kids uh, to uh, travel because I used to live in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, so I know how far that drive to Pennsylvania is from there. Yes. So going from Wando up there, that's that's a hike. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And, you know, it's it's uh, interesting because we have kids in this area that are um, doing things very similar to that. You know, the the lacrosse scene in Charlotte has just gone absolutely bonkers and from where we're at in Blythewood we're only about an hour drive from Charlotte um I have a kid on my team that's a sophomore uh that plays for Charlotte 24-7 which is a combination of uh Carolina Carolina team Carolina and um team 24-7 which are the best club programs in in the state Mm -hmm. and they combined and he made the national team for them so it it's you know, we're, we're sending kids from the Midlands to play for some of the best club teams, um, around. And I think that's just a testament to the love of the game. Um, you know, I think he, that this particular kid that I'm talking about, his name's, uh, Nicholas, uh, Funsale. He's a sophomore at our school and, uh, he's, he's got a D one talent level. I mean, he's got the size and the speed and that's the type of kids that are, popping up left and right around the state. And I think coaches around the country are going to start to see, you know, we got some big old boys down here in South Carolina that love the sport and are academically gifted. And I think we're going to be starting to send more and more kids D one. And of course the kid from Fort mill that went to Duke, I mean, that was just the start of it. And I, and I hope to see more kids like that. I mean, you got powerhouses, you know, all over the state that eventually the tide will turn where, you know, you won't see the same champion year in and year out. You know, you got a 5A school up in the upstate called Dorman. They're a huge school, just like Wando. You know, they, they've been on the doorstep a couple of times. Blythewood's been on the doorstep a couple of times. Dutch Fork here. So we have, we have a lot of teams in the area that, are on the cusp and ready to break through the wall. And I think in the, like I said, in the next couple of years, you'll start to see because the interest has grown, um, it'll be not only more competitive, but there will be more parity to each year, each season. Um, there will just be more competition and that's good for the sport. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually talked about that. If you were listening to last week's podcast about, you know, if it's a, what one off thing or if it's a change in power and like i think that's when you start to notice like you know sometimes it's a change of coaches you know sometimes you know a school like wando if the district you know they were like oh we need another high school because it's overpopulated and you know that could always change the dynamic of of a state as well if you know you split a school like wando and two and the talent pool spreads out a little bit more but you know also it's it depends on you mentioned some of the pro coaches and i know Joe Cummings has been in the news. Um, he coaches at Christchurch because he's obviously the new head coach at the Charlotte Hounds in the MLL. So he's another guy, you know, South Carolina guy, and obviously from the University of Maryland and everything. But right. you know, you start to see those that coaching tree, and you're you're a Philly guy. Like it's like everybody moves south and they take the game right. with them, and then they spread it, and it eventually kind of permeates through the state, and that you know that shift seems to eventually take place. It just, the speed at which it takes place seems to differ um, for depending on where you are. But 
I know from my perspective, I started my reporting career covering football. So like I'm a little mm-hmm. bit familiar with like a lot of the powerhouses in football. And I know South Carolina generally puts out a lot of division one talent in, uh, in football. And so you look at states like that, South Carolina, Florida, Texas, California. And it's for me, I look at them like it's only a matter of time before those states, if they put the, the wood behind the arrow, so to speak, behind mm-hmm. lacrosse, that, you know, those players that are because, you know, I hear football numbers are declining and those kids, they're going to want that contact. They're going to find it somewhere. And lacrosse is a pretty natural transition for many of them. And they can yeah. the, the athleticism applies. So, you know, I look at a state like South Carolina, I'm like, you know, if the coaching gets there, because as you know, in high school, a lot of it has to do with coaching. Like there's no coincidence that Wando has been such a power because they've had such consistency in their coaching. Like right. they just, so, you know, the coaches can make a huge difference in, in high school. And South Carolina is one of those states that, you know, give, give it some time and you guys couldn't, you know, it'll, it'll be, right up there with Georgia and everything with, you know, how many D one players like it will no, it'll no longer surprise people when a big name comes out of the state. It'll just kind of be like, Oh yeah. Another one. Absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. And that, so speaking from own personal experience. So when I got to Blythewood, they had gone through a number of head coaches, but the core portion of the coaching staff had remained the same, but the, the, the I guess the ultimate dividing factor fact that they hadn't had the same head coach you know year in and year out and what I wanted to bring to the table was some consistency and because we were able to keep you know the core portion of our coaching staff together uh, the kids get familiar with the system and they get familiar with how we like to run things and how practices are and so everything is just more productive when you have consistency um, at the at the head coaching level all the way down through your coaching staff. And uh, I have, you know, the, uh, I would say the best staff in the world, you know, we have um, six of us and it's just the love for the sport is what brought them into coaching because not a lot of people who have lived in the state for a while knew about lacrosse or didn't play at the youth level, but then they started to get involved with coaching and they start to learn about the game. And now, you know, they have, you know, 30, 30 years combined experience of coaching because they're, you know, they've all just invested themselves into the game. And I think that's, that's just an amazing thing. You know, the guy who originally started Blythewood's program, his name's Tony Rakes. And he's one of my assistant coaches, and he's been there since the beginning, since the school opened in 2005. And he's, you know, him and um, actually one of the assistant coaches at the University of South Carolina, Peter Candela, helped get the program off the ground. Um, my assistant coach, Coach Coach Barrow, has been there uh, for a long time. Coach Shelton, our JV coach, and Coach King, um, and they they just have a love for the game. They have a love for these kids and you see that across the state and the more consistent all these programs get with coaching staffs, the more of a rise in the talent that'll come out of there. Um, I, I will say, and it's not so much a, an issue as it is a challenge. Um, there are rules with the high school league mm-hmm. and it, it, I would like to see those rules 
change a little bit. You can't have, you know, a head coach from a school coaching a club program uh, where it has 75% of starters on it. And the reason I'd like to see that change is um, if the kids were around each other all the time with the same coaching staff, you could grow that relationship even more in the off season. I mean, I understand why they have it in place, but that's one thing I think would be nice to see change with the high school league. And I think would grow the sport greatly. Yeah. Um, one thing I was going to ask and it, and not about the club stuff, but I, I, I kind of looking at your background, obviously being, you know, being a Philly guy and then you obviously played a little bit in North Carolina, played South Carolina. Now you coach, like, what if you, like, it, what's the difference between the game between Philly and South Carolina? Like, cause I know like when you talk to Long Island and Baltimore, like Baltimore tends to be a little bit more um, finesse and maybe a little bit more uh, stick skills, Long Island, maybe a little bit more uh, gritty and hard nose play. Like, is there any kind of difference that you notice between the two States? So I would say, uh, the first thing you can notice between, um, an elite team and a team that's good is speed. Um, and not just, you know, the way that players run, but ball movement. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say when I was in playing in Philly, it, it was very apparent who was an elite team and who was just a good team based off of, overall speed of ball movement. And that's something that has started to um, really take hold down here. You know, we stress with our guys, you know, how, how fast the ball movement should be. Um, But that's something that I noticed when I first came down here was lacking. There was the fundamentals were there, but the speed at which they were doing those fundamentals was, um, was down a little bit. And then the second thing I would say at least I remember from my high school days was, you know, the overall uh, chirpiness out on the field and just kind of the grit that uh, you had playing in either the Catholic league or anywhere around Philly. There's, there's almost a swagger to everyone's play and down here you have that somewhat. um, But I think it's more of a learned thing as you get more involved in the sport to realize that's actually a part of the sport and it's a part of what makes the flow of the game so watchable is because people have you know a little bit of swagger they have you know that chip on their shoulder when they go out um and that's something that we're trying to make sure our kids realize is that you know that's okay that's in the tradition of the sport you know it's okay to be you know within the you know, within the confines of the rules, mm-hmm. but it's okay to be a little bit chirpy. It's okay to be, you know, a little bit, you know, of swag out there. You can, you can, um, you can implement your own personal touch to your game and um, teaching that into uh, the way that we play the game is something that I think um separates kind of the Northern version of lacrosse versus the Southern version. Um, it's not that it's laid back because the sport by nature is not laid back, mm-hmm. but trying to unlearn some of those tendencies that the kids have is a challenge that we get definitely need to get over. All right, coach. So just kind of wrapping up here a little bit, I was going to ask you, um, 
where do you kind of see the sport and maybe uh, five years? Like if you want to do that kind of projection on, cause you've mentioned a little bit about how it's been, been growing the last few years. Like do you see it being much bigger in five years or do you think it's more a little bit longer than that? Um, I would say in five years, the sport's going to grow drastically. Um, I think it's more of a 10 year projection to see uh, a ton of youth programs, but I think in five years, you're going to have, at least a couple of solid youth programs in the upstate, the Midlands and the low country. And I think that together that will create a much larger talent pool in the state. I think double that go to 10 years, you know, I see it all over the place. You know, we have uh, universities like Furman, um, you know, D one school is leading the charge in the state. Um, you have very big club programs up at Clemson and obviously a very good program at my alma mater where I played at University of South Carolina. They just finished fourth last year in the country. Uh, James Harkey, the coach over there, is really taking the program to new heights. And I'm hoping, you know, as the sport gets bigger, there's going to be more programs at it um, and Eventually, you know, who knows, maybe Clemson, maybe USC will be the next D1 program on the map. You know, Utah did it, and maybe that will inspire somebody. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to see that, and I'm hoping to see the sport explode. And I think it can only go up, and I think in that five-year projection, we'll be on board uh, with a North Carolina or with a Florida. Um, and then in 10 years, hopefully – if it keeps going on this upward trend, it'll even surpass those places. So I'm, I'm very hopeful for the future of the sport here. I think um, we have a lot of great coaches, a lot of great players, a lot of great parents that really love the sport and really want to see it grow. And say Clemson's got all that national championship money coming in, man. They got to have enough to be able to support a lacrosse program, right? <laughs> I, know, I know. It kill it kills me to hear that they won another national championship as a Gamecock, but you know, it's, it's only, it's only good things. And, you know, it is within the state, which is good. And I, I think to be honest with you, if there's any school that has the capability of going D one in lacrosse, I think Clemson's a really good setup to do that. Eventually, you know, they they're in the ACC, you know, they're in a really good area of the con of the state to go D one. Um, the, the one thing I think that would inhibit USC from doing it is just the fact that they are in the SEC. If Florida ended up going D1, which they already have a D1 girls program, mm -hmm. would really open the door. But, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's a low-revenue sport, but with a lot of people that love it. So hopefully maybe someday it'll be a high-revenue sport. I'm hopeful. Yeah, that's well, I know uh, probably everybody listening to this is, you know, we're all hoping the game, the game grows fast and, and spreads wide because that just makes it more fun for, for the rest of us. Gives yeah, us a lot more absolutely. to talk about. I hope everybody enjoyed that interview with Blythewood head coach Jason Casupe. Before we get into the next segment where we talk with Lee Roggenberg from Florida the Cross News and, of course, Michael Ward, we're going to take a quick word for this episode's sponsor. I'm here with Lee Roggenberg, senior writer of Florida Lacrosse News, and, of course, as always, here with Michael Ward. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having us. So, Lee, um, we were kind of getting pretty close to the Florida high school lacrosse season. I think you guys are probably getting ready to start practice here any day now, and I know the season's right on the cusp of starting, so we wanted to have you on 
just to see what's going to uh, hopefully happen. I know last year or the year before we kind of did some predictions that may or may not have panned out. So <laughs> probably do a little bit of that again uh, this year to see what's going on. Oh, no problem. Actually, I was uh, more accurate last year in my predictions on the final four than any other previous year. I was yeah. actually seven seconds away from having the final four exact. <laughs> <laughs> Not too bad. Um, you know, last year, I guess we should probably kind of recap a little bit of what happened last year, because last year was, I guess, uh, a landmark year for Florida high school across and the first public school won, won a title. Um, so talk a little bit about what from your point of view and looking back, like what that kind of meant for the Florida high school lacrosse scene? Well, I, I think that if nothing else, it at least shows that it can be done at the public school level. Uh, one of the things that uh, we have to also remember is that we've had public schools close before. Mm-hmm. of Beach a couple of years back, Jupiter's been in final fours. Uh, we've had a number of uh, quality public school programs that have gotten pretty deep into the playoffs before. And just like any other uh, place around, if you have your feeder program going, whether it's private or public, you know, you can make your way to a championship in this sport. And so I think that the, the good thing about it is that it did take sort of the onus off of this constant private versus public debate and allowed you to show that, yes, it can be done. Mm hmm. So it was, uh, I guess my next question is, is that the start of a trend or are we going to see uh, private school back in the championship or how, how, what's, who's looking good early? Well, I know it's really early, but who's looking good from your perspective so far this year? Well, I think for the most part, you just take all the teams that made it to the final eight last year. Uh, when you think about it, uh, Ponte Vedra is, is loaded this year. Jupiter is, is very strong this year. Oxbridge is strong. St. Andrews is strong. Bishop Moore is going to be down a little bit, but still strong. Cardinal Mooney, which uh, really took a major step last year, might be able to take another step this year, maybe get to the final four. St. Andrews will be fine. St. Thomas will be fine. Uh, this just, I think that, you know, something that we discussed in a previous podcast, Mike, is that people I think are surprised when I tell them that this state passed New York in population a year ago. Mm-hmm. And the amount of uh, programs, we're up to now 200 varsity programs on both the boys and girls side. And that is not showing any signs of slowing down. And then you look at some of the new high school coaches that came uh, in this season, a Peter Cordry and Benjamin, you know, the former principal standout, uh, Brooks Sweet has taken over at Montverde Academy. And of course, you know, even on the girls' side, Chris Robinson is now the head coach at Lake Island Prep. Yeah. So there is no shortage of quality coaching coming down to this area. Oh, and another one, you know, actually two weeks ago, found out that Skip Flanagan, former Avon Old Farms yeah. coach who retired, he's moved permanently down to Boynton Beach. So is he, is he coaching or is he coaching right now? Or is he taking he a year? Be, he won't be a, a head coach. I think at this point, it's more along the lines. I've uh, sort of introduced him around a little bit to a couple of uh, possibilities where he'll sort of help out. Not unlike a Richard Spackman who works with Stan and uh, Stan Ross. And uh, it's just, 
every year we're getting more. And oh, and, and also on the West Coast, Bishop Barrett has, has got the Ventaquatro family. I, I was actually just going to ask you about that because I saw yeah. that uh, uh, Kirk Kirk is going to be an assistant for his son over there yeah. this season. And I mean, this, know, they know a few things about lacrosse being yeah, <laughs> New York good. guys. Yeah, a couple of people that yeah. they've trained. Yeah, yeah, close to one or two good, decent, decent players. Remember that college is is all about. But uh, no, it's it, it, and there's no reason why it's going to stop anytime soon. You know, we've got two areas of the state that are really just starting to get going. Up in the Panhandle area, which U.S. Lacrosse Magazine actually featured last issue, and also in our Treasure Coast area. You draw a line from, say, oh, Melbourne up to uh, St. Augustine. That area is starting to get very serious, and that's pretty much the last two areas in the state that uh, really will sort of fill in it geographically as far as top programs are concerned. I and mean, it's just going to get better and better. Yeah, and I'm thinking looking at some of the just the amount of the coaching. I mean, obviously, Coach Seaman took over at St. Andrews a few years ago. We mentioned the Vinny Quattros. You know, it just seems like there there's a lot of name guys that are going down to Florida and are now coaching. I mean, like you said, Chris Robinson on the girls' side is probably going to wreak havoc down there um, in a few years. But you know, sticking with the boys, like just the and obviously the coaches that have been there, Coach Tom West. He's I know he's. From, from up north, you know, he had Chris Spalding, who was a New York guy several years at Lake Highland Prep. He went back to New York. But, you know, it's just kind of crazy how many coaches that are heading down south to coach and are, uh, you know, that I really think changing the way the, the landscape of the state has played. Because, I mean, for years it was basically St. Andrews and then Lake Highland Prep had, had their run there. And now it seems like it's getting a little bit more um, parity throughout the state. Without uh, without question, there's so much more quality, and I think you can even see it in the number of Division One recruits this year. If you go back like three years, we had a bit of a lull where maybe only one or two Florida grads were making any sort of impact and were being recruited to D1 level this year. You look at the class of 2019, the class of 2020, and it's just loaded with D1 prospects. And these, are, these prospects are not just athletes anymore. These are legitimate IQ-trained lacrosse players. And the flow of those coaches down just continues to make that part of the equation better uh, for the programs down here. And you, you can see it. You go out and you watch a high-end high school lacrosse game down here, and it is just as good as you're going to see just about anywhere. And you also see it in – programs that are now making the trip down here in the past it was pretty much the miaa top dogs you would have boys latin and mcdonough traditionally making trips down here mm -hmm. loyola blakefield started last year we have bullets coming down for a three-game swing uh, we've got gonzaga coming in for the jesuit classic that'll be at Berlin jesuit in march along with dallas jesuit who's going to be making a, a tour down here I think there's a Long Island team. I don't remember which one off the top of my head that's going to be coming in. And so you're starting to see the top programs in the nation beyond just Boys Latin McDonough. Mm. We used to use this as sort of a training trip. Mm -hmm. past. They're coming down here because they know they're going to get top end competition early and get ready for their seasons. 
Yeah, and it's always like one of those, I don't want to say prime for an upset, but I mean, obviously, I think St. Andrews probably pulled off the biggest one a number of years ago, but it's one of those things too. Florida, you guys are about halfway through your season by the time a lot of those teams get down, and it's usually, you know, first couple games of those teams year, like Boys Latin and McDonough. Loyola, like they're they're still pretty early in their in their year at that point in time. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a quirk, unfortunately, that you know, because of the weather, we tend to start the school year earlier. We end it earlier than up mm-hmm. north, and a lot of times those teams, as you say, they're just starting out, and it shows even in something as simple as would a state champion get invited to a Geico type tournament. And the problem being is that we're already done with school for three to four weeks yeah. <laughs> before that tournament even gets played. And it's kind of a shame because I'd like to see uh, – St. Thomas, by the way, is going back uh, up to Long Island this year. They're going to be playing Massapequa and possibly Syosset. And to remember two years ago, they gave Massapequa all they could handle. Yes. And so, again, it's just – it's just a uh, feather in the cap as far as we're being taken seriously. Uh, whereas maybe five, six, seven years ago, one or two teams would be taken seriously. So I, I know I asked you like who, who your favorites are, but I'm going to pin you down a little bit. Like who are the teams that you really like? Who do you thinking might make the championship game this year? Like I, I think I asked you two years ago when we did this, was, is it Pontevedra's year? I know you said they're loaded. So I'm going to ask you again, do you think this is the year that Coach West breaks through and it gets one? I think there's a very good possibility. Uh, first of all, he gets the, I won't say the easiest ride into the final four, but it's not as stacked as say the Southeast is or what might be coming out of the treasure coast this year. It would not surprise me if we had four rematches of the regional finals Mm-hmm. Last year, we had you know, St. Andrews against Berlin. Uh, that's a possibility again. Obviously, you know people f- remember that we have Oxbridge and St. Andrews. It's a normal first-round game. And then the Survivor playing St. Thomas in the second round of the uh, playoffs. Yeah. And then uh, kind of, you know, we got our typical Jupiter-Benjamin district championship game, which I've uh, coined the best damn district final in America period after John Sally's own old show. Uh, and then Cardinal Mooney has a great shot uh, this year uh, to, you know, they gave Jupiter all they could handle last year. And uh, Pontevedra basically went through, I'm um, just kind of remembering if I remember correctly, it was, uh, oh gosh, golf. No, it couldn't have been golf reason. I'm blanking on it right now, but uh, Pontevedra, looks like it should have the easy road to the semis. They would be matched up with the uh, Orlando-Tampa, which last year was Bishop Moore of Tampa Jesuits also in there. Uh, Bishop Moore will be a little bit down this year. So I think, you know, Pontevedra in the finals against uh, whoever the survivor is from Jupiter, Cardinal, Mooney, and the other three teams. Uh, and, you know, that's, that could be Tom's year. He's got, he's got a stacked roster. Yeah, no, they always got a, always got a ton of talent down there, um, or I guess up there, because I guess they're up towards more of the Jacksonville area. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy because you think about how long Florida is, like, dimensions-wise. I mean, you look at St. Andrews and Oxbridge, which are, I guess, are down there to the, uh, 
the Boca area, and then you got the Lake Highland Prep is kind of in the center of the state, obviously with Tampa, the Tampa schools, and then, you know, the schools up towards the Jacksonville area. Like, it's very spread out <laughs> across the state, and I know, like, it's I, every year, I think, I've thought Oxbridge was kind of going to break through a couple times over the last couple of years. And it seems like they just, those teams just have a tough road to the championship game. Like they, they play some pretty tough games pretty early on. So it's, you know, it's no surprise that usually the survivor of that early round game has, I think, well, you know, you know, keep in mind, you know, in order to explain the geography very easily for those up North, I grew up on Long Island near Jones beach it was quicker for me to drive from there to Buffalo than it is for me to drive from Boca Raton to Tallahassee. Yeah. Just so people sort of get that perception. I could be in 10 states from Long Island as opposed to going from Boca to Tallahassee. So this, it's, it's a part of the problem with the growth is that it makes it hard to go to a classification system. We have 200 teams, but it's so spread out geographically that if you go to a classification, you might have some pretty hefty traveling to do. And I think we're just a little too early to go to classes at this point in the state. I'd rather just kind of keep it in one. And you know, we, if we want to, we can get briefly into something I wrote about over the summer about a potential change in the playoff system that I think would solve a lot of issues with a lot of people. Yeah, I can't imagine you guys going to a true class system where you have the potential of like a uh, a team from Fort Lauderdale, like a St. Thomas Aquinas, having to play like a bowl school out of Jacksonville in the first round because that's a lot of that's a lot of traveling um, for yes, one of those programs. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's not probably too indifferent from what New York. Really, you know, obviously they have their sections, and then you know, so like all the Long Island schools kind of play their tournament, which. You know, in, in many years, some of those Long Island championship games could probably very easily have been a state championship game had those teams been on separate sides of a bracket. Um, and then you get, you know, they kind of play up their way. So it's not too indifferent um, from a state like New York. I mean, you got you got to get there and you're battle tested by the time you reach those championship games in a lot of instances. Yeah. And, you know, I use New York to counter the argument about private and public down here. You take Chaminade, you take St. Anthony's out of the equation, and is there a, a public, I'm sorry, a private school in New York who could compete for a state championship? I'm not so sure there is. Yeah, off the top of you my know, head, I mean, if you take those two out of the equation, it'd, it'd be a little tougher because those public schools in New York are, are pretty darn good. Yeah, and it's it comes back to the same thing. You come up through the youth ranks there. Yeah. You do it geographically, and... Uh, it's not a matter of public or private. It's a matter of can you get the kids early enough? Can you teach them the system they're going to probably see in high school, get their skills, get their IQ, and it doesn't really matter where it's private, private or public. It's just a matter of you have lacrosse players. Yeah. And speaking of lacrosse players, I don't want to let you go before we kind of talk about any of the, the players. So who are a couple of the, the big-name players that people should kind of keep their, you know, that may or may not be a household name at this point in time? Well, I got to tell you, I was afraid you're going to ask me that. <laughs> I reached out to a lot of coaches and I got back approximately 50 names. <laughs> and I would hate to sort of, uh, sort of slight any of them 
Uh, I kind of broke it down geographically, so we'll do this fairly rapidly. Up in the Northeast, uh, Ponte Vedra, I mentioned that being loaded. Carter Parlett, Notre Dame, Dylan Hess, Georgetown, Fred Amato, Lehigh, Max Shallot, Notre Dame, Jack Dowd, Furman, Jimmy Burns, Mess, Lowell, Scott, Matt Pounder going to Jacksonville, Fleming Island has Eric Dobson to Notre Dame, Oak Hall's got Kyle Cox, he's got Sam Chase, who is Brooks' uh, son. You go to uh, the center of the state, you've got uh, Jackson Canfield, Vermont uh, commit, and Jake Kiefer, Utah commit, at uh, Bishop Moore, Hudson Bone at Lake Highlands, who I think is going to Penn State. Uh, Colton Mortimer and uh, Ryan Paquette at Lake Mary, Justin Williams at Montverde, uh, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> go to the, we go to this, uh, the, the West Coast. we got MJ McMahon, a, a Utah commit, Cardinal Mooney, Ryan, Ryan Katchen, Mercer commit, uh, a number of other players from that school. We've got um, Nate Hines out of Riverview, James Viard out of Outdoor Academy, which is not a school I've ever mentioned before. Yeah, it's a different Drew one. <laughs> yeah, Drew Mates, Plant going to Mercer. Tampa Jesuits got Kenny Lane going to Salisbury. Uh, more and more that I've got, you know, down here. And we've got Matt Adams, Michael Lizio over at uh, St. Andrews. Christian Tomei, the Ohio State commit. Jack Killing and Connor Davies at Oxbridge. Dylan Frankhauser, Chris Radis at uh, Jupiter. Frankhauser Air Force. Uh, Radis just committed. I'm forgetting, I think maybe Towson. Uh, Nick Yovino and Grant Lehman at uh, St. Thomas, uh, A.J. Levitt and Bryce Kendrigan and Mike Labosco over at Benjamin. Caden Brothers is a St. Ed's commit to uh, Johns Hopkins. Then you go south, you've got uh, Marcelo Arteaga, who's a uh, Culver Prep kid who converted early to Hopkins. And uh, There's a kid named Patrick Valerius who, from Columbus that you're going to be hearing about. Rafa Brew, Belen, Enrique Sorensen. I mean, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's loaded. Yeah. Gone are the days where it's just a handful of kids out of Florida <laughs> that people, the names that people are going to recognize. And, you know, the beauty of it was, is that if you had asked me that question two years ago, I could have done it in about eight names. Yeah. That I tell mean, you it's a, te- well, I think what, what, how many years ago was it now? It doesn't feel like it was that long, but I think it was what, four years ago when the FHSA, like they based like all the schools, in the South kind of announced that they were all going to, um, uh, oh, I forget the name of the County. Is it not plant? That's the school. Oh, you're thinking over in the Tampa area yeah. with the Hillsborough County. Yeah. When they yeah. announced they were going to well, all back lacrosse. It's just, the, it was yeah, at that moment. That last year, last year, the, uh, the socialized approach went away. Some okay. the County actually took it over from, oh gosh, I think it was called Hal. Oh, they're, they're going to kill me over there. Halal or something like that. Hala. And uh, this is the problem when you get to be 60, <laughs> if you get some of these things. But you know, they, they were there to get the sport going. The county's now taking it back, and they're allowing road trips uh, outside the county if you can self-fund it. And you know, keep an eye on a program like Vieira on the Treasure Coast, who's scheduled St. Thomas this year. I think first game of the year is going to come down here. And uh, I'm very interested to see that's sort of that next step that that area has to take is to start to schedule the better teams within the driving distances. And let's see what they've got in that area. Yeah. They've spent time building those youth programs. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that game. Yeah. 
So um, before, you know, Michael, I know uh, this is probably all, you know, you're still fairly new and kind of more adept to the Midwest, but is there anything that you have curious about to ask Lee before we let him go? Oh, no, I think he's, uh, he's this very thorough. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, and, I mean, I've always said it's only a matter of time before Florida, Texas, and California take over, you know, and it sounds like Florida's right here. So, yeah, they've so been, yeah that was very thorough. They, it, it's been amazing to watch because I think, you know, I'm trying like I started in 2008, 2009. And I remember it was pretty much like you could, you know, basically pen St. Andrews in at that point. And then I think, you know, within a few years, it's like it was basically St. Andrews and Lake Highland prep. Like you could like that's your championship game year in, year out. And then within a few years, you know, you get a couple other teams and Ponte Vedra was always there. But it just seemed like no one could kind of get over that hump of those two schools. And then slowly but surely, these other programs have kind of gotten in there. And you've gotten more and more names from coaching staffs that have come in and done stuff. And you're seeing more and more kids go to colleges, not just D1, but go to you know D2 and D3. And it's just been slowly. And so, you know, for some people, it may seem like all of a sudden. But I guess I've been seeing it for a number of years. And, Leah, like I know you've been down there for – a while and covered for Florida lacrosse news and various functions. So it's been kind of great to see the sport grow down there and just continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, you know, I don't think we've seen the peak at this point in time. I think we're still, we're still on the climb. No. And it, you know, we're basically the example of the sport moving around the country. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, Mike, about Texas and California also, Yeah, it's just, uh, for those of us who grew up with the sport, who were from the Northeast, knew that this sport could be really big around the country if we could just find a way to make it geographically acceptable. I think we're getting really close to that point where it's no longer going to be, where are you from it's more along the lines of how do you play? Mm -hmm. And I think that in a lot of times there's still always been sort of that doubt about whether the non-hatbed players can win a championship. But you saw, for instance, with the Bernhards down here, Mm -hmm. you're two of the 23 national team members of a world championship team are from Orlando. And their younger brother might be the best of the bunch. So you, you're looking at that and you're finally getting to the point where the programs in these states have taken their place around the country. And it's only just a matter of we now have to expand the opportunities at the Division One level. And if we figure that out, boy, oh, boy, <laughs> it's going to be fun. Yeah, I was talking with uh, – uh coach from South Carolina, Jason Kazupe, the Blythewood, and he was talking about, you know, the, the dream of you know, maybe a Clemson getting going D1. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would love to see like a Florida who's already got a D1 program for women or a Florida State or a Miami or someplace like that be be the next D1 program because that would be another – it would be a huge opportunity for kids in the state to begin with, but it would just be huge for the sport in general to get get a team down there. Florida State would be the more natural pick because you've got the ACC mm-hmm. for the pick. Yeah. And they're close enough to some of those schools that they can bust to them. Yeah. 
And so, you know, that takes a, a bit of the equation out of play. And, you know, I hate to beat a dead horse, but boy, it'd be nice if we could just mend Title IX a little bit. Uh, you know, we're at a point now where if Jeremy Foley at Gainesville couldn't figure a way to get around the current rules and get a men's program going, then uh, who can? Yeah. Jerry, Jerry was a Hobart grad, played lacrosse, has done a marvelous job with the women's program in Gainesville. I, mean, I don't know if you guys have ever attended a game at, uh, at the Gainesville, uh, at, at the Gator Stadium there, but they have a dedicated lacrosse stadium and facilities for Mandy O'Leary's program that are just top notch. And it's just sitting there waiting to be used for a men's team too. Definitely would be nice to see the program, but you know, as you said, like it's going to come down to money. It's not a high revenue sport in the college game. And you know, obviously it's, uh, it's, it's usually an easier pickup for the women's side because it's satisfied, you know, because obviously a lot of those programs like Florida state, Florida, they're carrying so many men for the football side that adding a women's game makes it a little bit easier to balance out for the title nine rule. So, you know, add a men's program and you also have to add it for the women too. So that becomes a bit of a challenge because, you got to find remember that when title nine was originally formed 55% of the students were men. Now it's 50, 55% women in colleges across the nation. And I think that it would be nice if we kind of had this debate a little bit about how can we, it's not about opportunity anymore because you go to Gainesville and you see what the women's sports programs are like there no one can make a claim that there's a lack of opportunities for women there. It's just a matter of, can we finally have this sort of face to face and say, look, we don't want to have a situation like Richmond went through where to have men's lacrosse, they had to drop men's soccer. Right. Yeah. That's not, that's not what the spirit of title nine was all about when Senator Birch by introduced it 40 years ago. That wasn't what it was about. Yeah. It was about opportunity for women. It wasn't about a quota system. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that'll be a topic for another podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll probably have my head <laughs> off, uh, on Twitter for from a couple of people. Oh, uh, yeah. well, that, that's actually about the perfect segue. And you're welcome <laughs> to stick on because uh, Michael and I are actually going to talk a little bit about social media. Anybody who read his, his latest column, um, probably you know may know a little bit about what we're talking about but before we get there lee uh i know you you said you were happy to stick around but let everybody know where they can find you online either on the website on twitter wherever you want to be found uh the website's pretty simple www.floridalacrossenews.com twitter we're florida capital l capital x uh instagram uh i have to say we're we're just getting started so uh, being 60, sometimes I'm a little slow to this stuff. Uh, and on uh, Facebook, uh, FL, I think it's F-L-A-L-A-X-A-W-S. And what, what was the Instagram handle again, just in case? Because I don't think I got it. <laughs> I don't know it yet. <laughs> okay. I will look it up and I'll make sure I put all the links um, in, in the show notes as well so people can find you. And they can be, they can be among the first to follow. Thank you very much. Michael, I know um, we wanted to talk a little bit about so- social media because your, your latest column 
touched a little bit on it and you know it's one of those things and i think it's kind of a uh topical week i guess with everything that happened with lyle thompson and i think most of that got started on twitter so it kind of seemed like the perfect week to talk a little bit about social media its uses both positive and negative um and kind of so i'll let you kind of kick off and talk a little bit about your feelings or wherever you want to kick off about social media uh well you know as i wrote my article it was just it, the, the depressing thing was that I've had such good, um, such good experiences with it, with it since we've started with since I've started with Lax Records. Uh, but then I sort of put out an innocuous top five list for the Midwest, uh, you know, and it was basically teams that made something. They all won state championships, and the and the responses I got privately. Now there were responses publicly that were like, "Oh, why would you put this team here? This team here?" And then I explained it. It was the it was the ones that I got privately, which were, I, 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 they were literally outrageous. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, outrageous. Like, who wants to who wants to challenge me to a to a fight? <laughs> I mean, I I, I I kept saying like, this is over Midwest high school lacrosse. One person saying you know swearing, and another person talking about how great their travel program is, and I'm like, what what? It, this is nuts. Um, and then on the flip side though is the is the is the people that I've met or talked to or who respond to me. That's great. So it's, you take the good with the bad, but it's just like, you know what, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Uh, so if you're going to act like a, you know, an, a moron, uh, I'm going to let people know who the moron is. The funny thing, the funny thing was is in my private conversations with other coaches or parents in certain areas, when I brought up certain statements, they knew who the person was. Mm-hmm. Which is when a when a high school coach can tell you when he dropped the name, I started laughing. Now I didn't tell him that he was right, <laughs> but he was right. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, oh, you know. And so it was, it was. It, it, I don't want to say it was eye opening because if you read my article, you saw that I know, you know, based on my background running for office, I know how it works. But yeah, uh, it was it was just it was sad. But then today or yesterday, for example. Um, when I was talking to the, uh, the coach from Tufts, I, I, I did a, you know, sent him interview questions and I asked him, can I post just this screenshot of one of the answers? Because I thought it was a great answer. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I've gotten, I don't know, 150 people responded to me, uh, people privately saying, this is great. Um, and, and that starts a conversation. And I basically said, listen, if you want to use my Twitter page or whatever it is as a forum for parents who don't understand for players who don't for coaches to chime in have at it so you take the good with the bad but but the the ridiculousness of the the it's not the swearing i swear all like all the time but it's <laughs> it's the the unhingedness that someone gets that unhinged about a lacrosse high school game that they're not even playing it's their child that's playing like talking about another high school and i want to say did you go to that high school? Like, like, why are you so upset about another high school? You're, you're a parent. You're a grown-up. It, what, what does it have to do with you? I can understand kids having rivalries. That's fun. But parents saying, I hate that high school, that's nuts. Yeah, and Lee, I'm, I'm sure you probably have an opinion on this, too, because you've been, you've been doing this long enough that uh, you've probably seen a lot. Um, you know, for me, it's one of those things, like, 
I, I've been doing it long enough. I, you know, I used to have much thinner skin. <laughs> I think it's just been thickened over time. So like I tend to ignore, but you know, it's, it's funny because I think it was right after your article, Michael, that, you know, I got some responses to, um, or not responses, but like a response to one of the tweets I had sent out and it was about face off. I saw it. I was going to comment. I saw it. And, and I was like, why? <laughs> and, um, and it's not the first time I've gotten a response like this. And I'm not going to call the person out. If you want to go find it, you can go through the Twitter feed. But I don't, it didn't, I don't, I didn't even register the name to begin with. Um, but it was basically like kind of downplaying, like to the effect of, yeah, the, the stats all that is all that matters. It's not about the team. And it's not the first time I've gotten a comment like that. And I just have to laugh because in my Twitter profile, it tells you that I cover stats in high school. Right. So it just kind of, as like, obviously I just kind of take it like, you obviously have no idea what I do, who I am. You just saw this and just made a snap judgment. I believe and, it was also at two in the morning. Yeah. I didn't even look at the time. Like I yeah. literally, I, I think it was at, at two it, in the morning, chuckled and then went about my life. Right. But it's one of those things like, and I think I had uh, retweeted your your one of your um, uh, on your article one of the things that I, the quotes I'd put because for me I have you know I have basically covered high school for the majority of my career like when I first started reporting I covered college baseball and I did some freelancing for that but for the majority of my career I've covered high school and one of the early lessons that my mentor and my boss had taught me was like you know we're dealing with high school kids. 16 to 18 year old kids like these are not professional athletes and because i started covering football this was the example he gave to me he was like johnny never fumbled the ball joe stripped the ball and ran it back for a touchdown and it is a subtle difference but it's the difference between praising a kid for doing something good and then making a kid feel bad for doing something that he already feels bad about like the kid you know none of the kids want to screw up they don't want to and so it's almost like taking your dog's nose and rubbing it in it. <laughs> if you say, but like, Oh, you know, it's like, it's fine if you want to do it in college and fair game, if you want to do it to professional athletes and, and everything. But from my perspective, I always think it's like, you know, I'm here to shine a light on the positive things that kids do in high school. So for me, like when I see stuff on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that, if it's remotely negative, I don't even bother to engage anymore. Like, I'm like, you're not worth my time. I'm, you know, First of all, I know like I won't win the argument. Like I think the only time I've actually engaged was a couple years ago. There was a, a group of parents, or a parent from Tennessee, who his kid was um, uh, making up in the record book, and they took pic- like um, pictures after he committed to college, and they were having fun with it. And someone jumped in, was criticizing the type of photo that they took because they, I guess they weren't in the vision that that person thought they were. And that, I honestly, I could not abide. I had to jump in and tell him to shut the F up. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, because I guess I was just offended that they were, because I had tweeted it out and then they were commenting on this kid. And I could tell it upset the parents to the point where I actually called the parents and told them, I was like, this is a troll. They're only doing this because they think they can get to you. And by you engaging them, you're feeding them. So just stop and I will handle it. And then I took care of it from there. And I'm just like, you know, that stuff, like, there's a point you can push me, and whenever you start to talk bad about kids, even if they're not mine, like that will drive me nuts. But otherwise, you can come at me all you want. You just won't get any response, like because I'll ignore you. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, well, the one the other day that with you, like I sat and looked at my screen for about five minutes, going, and I did start writing something. Like <laughs> I, it was cut, and I'm like, 
I'm just going to let it go. Because then I looked at the time and I'm like, and the, and the person didn't add anything else. And they might have looked at it and be like, why did I, you know, why, what, what difference did that make? You know, because it's called Lax Records. Yeah. <laughs> and it's about, like, it's about stat. But if you saw uh, earlier this week on Twitter, um, I think uh, Inside Lacrosse or, or, or one of the things just put the article out about uh, Ryder Garnsey. Yes. And then someone commented like, oh, for these keyboard cowboys, like reporting on something. And he just, the guy got crushed. I mean, they're like, uh, this guy has a degree from Syracuse and what are calling him a, a keyboard cowboy is a little bit of an insult. <laughs> he would, I, it was sort of, I don't know if he's followed along with it, but, and they kept going after this guy. Uh, yeah. It was, it was a little odd, but I'm like, why do people make these? I mean, I understand some people just like to, to do it. Uh, but I sit there and go, why would you do it when you're gonna, when you know you're going to lose? I, I don't see the end game. I don't see it, and I and I won't. My, the younger me would have done that. I would have loved to have started with people. I mean, I loved. I did it. I did it face to face. I didn't need a, a Twitter. <laughs> but now I, I look at it and I'm like, I'm just going to go with the good stuff. Like you said, exactly what you said. Instead of saying someone fumbled, someone stripped the ball, because they're both true. But one's not focusing on the kid who did it because again that's what i keep trying to say to these parents it's these are kids these are literally kids uh let's not lose our minds i tried to just keep saying this is high school lacrosse in the midwest it's it's not really the hotbed you think it is i mean seriously it's not (laughs) i hope to be i hope it is and there's some great players that come out of here but it's not saying oh we've got to scour the midwest um, to get all these great players. It's let's go look in our hotbeds. And then if we hear about these two, three, eight, 12, 15 players that could fill, let's go look for them. Uh, and, and that's, that's sort of what I, I, I'm with you on the, let's not go after kids. And, and I'm going to let the parent stuff roll off. But as you can see, the uh, state associations now have been coming out with letters. I see Ohio, or Ohio came out with a letter. North Carolina came out with a letter to parents about not screaming at referees because they're losing referees and there will be no more games. And that was one of my earlier co- columns about parental behavior. So the fact that yeah. associations are going after it now is a great thing, is a great sign. Yeah, we actually have that. We actually, yeah, sorry, guys. Just to, no, we actually have it also on the Florida High School Athletic Association homepage. Uh, there's a note about that. And, and, you know, Mike, you know, from reading my stuff before that I've called out parents at games I've attended and uh, written up uh, about their behavior. And you know, I, I constantly try to tell parents it's a different game from the stands. You have three dimensions from the stands. If you think that the referees are going to see everything you see on the field when they've got big kids running fast and getting in their line of sight, you're kidding yourself. Yeah. And you've just got to learn to root for the kids and not against anyone. And certainly not against the referees because we have the same exact issue down here. Referees give up doing the high school games because they're tired of being yelled at. Well, I like, I like the fact that it's being, being brought up now. I mean, I know it's always been going on. As I said today, this is nothing new. This is going on. Forever. I mean, as long as I've ever been to a sporting event, but now it's being brought up by the, the heads of, of the athletic associations, which are great. Um, and I want to give parents the benefit of the doubt. Like a, a lot of them don't even get that they're doing it. You know, they think it's normal, 
But I think the more and more people start talking about it, the more and more pressure they'll feel like, oh, wait, maybe it's me. And then that might help. Um, so that's one of the things that enjoy. This. I mean, I've seen kids get embarrassed. I literally have talked to kids whose kid who were said, my dad was embarrassing me today. And, yep. and, that, and I said it to the dad. I actually said, you know, I just talked to your son. And he was embarrassed by you today. Did you notice that you stand alone? Like everyone walks away from you. And he's like, <laughs> really? Like he didn't get it. He's like, but I only yelled, yelled to my kid. And I said, but you're constantly yelling at him. Like the coach doesn't want you to do that. No one wants it. So, you know, hopefully people get better. Hopefully they understand. I'll, I'll give everyone the benefit of the doubt at this point and say, addressing it more will help it more. Hopefully. And I actually have two things like to your comment about the kid. I remember standing on the sideline of a game at a a fairly predominant private school. I'm not going to say who, but I stand on the sideline and stands there. It's, it's, a, a football field, so you know you have the the um, the track, and then basically you have the stands. So it was pretty close to the field, and you had a parent yelling at his son from the stand constantly. And the kid never turned around, but his friends were con- like they could be like, "Oh, you no, know, that's your dad. Here, your dad." You no, know, his kid friends were just riding the kid, and he was just like, "I just wish he would just. I, was like, I wish he would just stay home." Like the kid was embarrassed to have his dad at the game. Like he didn't even want yeah. him there. And I'm like, "That's horrible." I'm like, "You should be happy your dad would be able to come to the game." But I'm like, "He's embarrassing him. Like he doesn't want him there." Um, so you know, that's that's always been a moment that has stood out to me. Um, and it's not the first time it's happened. It just was at a lacrosse game, and I remember standing next to the kid. But um, the other thing is, a couple weeks ago, I came across an article, and it was from last year. It's not even a, a recent article, but it was from in Idaho where they were talking about losing referees in basketball and football. And the second article is outspoken parents, or second paragraph, outspoken parents and obnoxious fans who want to run referees out of basketball gymnasiums due to perceived bad calls could be doing just that. They could be running referees out of the game. And so they're talking about like a, basically a, epidemic in Idaho about not being able to have officials for their sports. Cause they said there's been a drop in officials every year since 2011. And I'm it's like, nationwide. yeah, it's not isolated to our sport. It's just, you know, it's, and it's, I don't know if people think about it. It's like a lot of these guys, like it's not their profession. They're doing it because, you know, and it's probably not unlike me and reporting. Like, I didn't have the talent to keep playing the sports that I love to play. So I was like, well, how do I stay involved? And I'm like, and I report on it. You know, other guys, like, they may not have the athleticism to play, but they still get to be on the field. So they're like, well, I can be an official and I can still stay involved and I can be in athletics. But they're not, you know, they're not making thousands of dollars and millions of dollars to do this. Like, they're doing it because they enjoy it. And if, they stop enjoying it because parents are a pain in the butt. Like they're going to stop. And then if you don't have enough officials to play the game, there is no game. <laughs> right. They're not going to play without officials. So. Right. I, I'll, I'll tell you something that was funny or not funny, but true. Last night we had our parent meeting for our high school, for the players uh, with the coaches and everyone ex- with the, with what's going on. Here's what we're doing for the year. Every, all the information, our assistant varsity coach was a lacrosse referee in the state of Indiana. And after everything was said and done, he stopped and addressed the whole, the whole room of 70 parents or 80 parents or whatever was there saying, let's, we don't want any yelling at the refs. We want to be better than that. And then he went on to say, he goes, because there's not going to be any more. He's like, I took it. 
He's like, I talk to refs after every game, and they're like, it's not worth it. This is coming from a ref who happened to be, you know, our coach. Mm-hmm. And he gave it to our parents. Like, we won't stand for it. We won't tolerate it. This is not going to come from our school anymore. Uh, that's it. And, I'm, you know, no one clapped, but I'm, in, my mind, I was cla- <laughs> in my mind, I was clapping. I would have started the slow clap, but I didn't want to look like an idiot. But I'm thinking <laughs> he just scolded everyone in that room, and it's coming from the coach of their dad, of their kids. Yeah. So you got a twofold. You want to, you want to anger the coach? No. So I was very pleased and very happy with how that went last night. Well, if you think about it, you know, the parents are pretty expendable when it comes to playing a high school athletic game. Like they don't, you don't need people in the stands to play the game. The game will go on if nobody's in the stands. Like, but if you don't have the players and you don't have the officials, you don't have coaches, there is no game. So you've got, it's like, you know, it's going to be what, like, no one wants to play to an empty stadium, but if you got to lose something, it's like, well, you, you can't, there are no games if there's no officials. So I think, you know, just the, the parent behavior in general, and I mean, it's, it's a topic I've talked about on this podcast before, but, you know, Lee, I, I'd like to ask you, because I know with Florida, with the way rated score, and I thought I read an article a couple of years ago, that they were just having trouble finding officials to do some of the games in Florida because they didn't have enough. Is that kind of still the case? Is there still a little bit of a struggle down there? A lot of the high school games, well, let, let's let, try to put it this way. The top matchups have a full referee complement all the time. I have been in plenty of games at that middle tier where there's been two refs. And at some of the uh, lower level games, I've actually seen them refed with one official. Mm. And we've actually had middle school cancellations around the state because of a lack of refs. And uh, that's now that's partly because obviously the growth is come pretty quickly, but it's also because some of the refs have just given up with dealing with the parents and it's it's a constant battle. Uh, It's a difficult, I think it's a little bit more difficult for us down here also in that again, because we're so new to the sport parents who have kind of grown up, and have their kids in high school now and a little bit before, uh, a lot of them have been around the sport five, six, seven years, and they think they know as much about the rule interpretations as the referees do. They're not in that lax con referee session when they talk about what's going to be emphasized this year. Yeah. I constantly try to tell parents that. said, it might have been a call last year, but this year they've been told to put the whistle away or they've been told to tighten up the targeting. And you have to understand that your knowledge of the rules is not what the referee's knowledge is. And you are just going to drive yourself crazy. If you think yelling at a game is going to get your team a call, <laughs> it's not going to happen. So just accept that we teach our kids life is not fair, except at the lacrosse game. (laughs) For some reason, we seem to throw that away when the parents are in the stands. Life's not fair, parents. Deal with it. So since we can solve all the world's problems, like what do you think? Do you think this is something that I guess can be corrected? Or do you think it's just the inevitability that like, or what do you think it would take for people to actually be like, all right, I'm just going to shut my mouth and sit here. Cause you know, I know, you know, I'm guilty when I was a kid, when I, when I was younger, I used to yell at the TV screen when I'd watch my teams play. 
I kind of gave that up a number of years ago because to be honest, like I think at one point, like I was like, I was in like I was in a room by myself and I was yelling at the screen. I kind of had a moment and I was like, I seem like an a hole. I was just like, and I'm by myself and I'm embarrassed. I'm like, all right, I've obviously passed the point where I'm like, this isn't worth it. Like they can't hear me. It's not doing anything. All I'm doing is causing myself stress. But you know, know, that's against a TV screen. I only had myself to be embarrassed about them. But you know, I've never done it at at a game. But like. Is it inevitable that we're just going to get to a point where someone's just like, you know, we quit, we we have to cancel a state championship game because we can't find officials? Well, I'll tell you a, a couple of interesting stories. I remember a game, a couple of games last year on the girls' side where the lead referee actually stopped the game, told the coaches to go over to the stands and get their parents under control. Uh, but let's not get ourselves. I mean, sports are competitive in this country. There, I've always told people who maybe who are not from this country and come here and say, well, why is sports such a big deal here? They say it's probably because it's our culture. And because of that, many of us have grown up playing the sport or have grown up watching the sports, sports in general. We're not going to fully eliminate this thing. I don't think that should be the point. I think the point should just be to have the parents understand how to enjoy what they're seeing and not worry so much about whether or not the call went their way. And so it's not going to go away. It's just a matter of, can we can control it? I mean, for God's sake, I mean, how many of us are screaming at the NFL refs for taking five minutes to do a replay (laughs) or, you know, the, the last second buzzer beater and they're reviewing that for two minutes. So they leave his hand in time. You know, that, it's just part of the nature, and it's more along the lines of can we sort of just go in the right direction. Right. I don't think we ever want to be at a point where we don't care at all and no one ever yells at anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of the exact opposite. If we're going to do that, we might as well all just go watch ballet. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, I guess that kind of does it for, for this week. I know we had started that we were going to talk about social media, and then we went to uh, – referees a little bit the the conversation just kind of took us there but i think it kind of all fit in just with you know i guess bad behavior was the, was the theme uh yep. on today but you know kind of makes sense and i guess the the biggest lesson i think we could probably take away is you know just probably be a little bit kinder to each other and just be a little bit more understanding like you know these guys running around on the field like they're doing it because they love the sport too and i don't think anyone like at least none of the officials i've ever talked to have ever gone out there in any uh, maliciousness um, in any fashion. So, you know, just I guess we'll kind of do our best to, to keep, keep things uh, civil and realize like we all want this game to flourish and we want to definitely make sure um, we don't drive people away from the sport. We want to bring people to the sport. So true. So true, Mike. You know, it's, it's this game sells itself when you let it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Everyone else who's been around this knows that this is one fantastic sport to watch. Yes. And we need to enjoy it more. And I just got a message from Michael. He said he can hear us, but I guess the for some reason the microphone is not working. So he is with us in spirit. <laughs> Definitely. He's not one of those Syracuse grads, is he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're so before I go, I know Lee, you already said uh, where everybody can find you. So I'll let everybody know where they can find Michael Ward and I'll have links again. He's on Twitter at MFWChai, that's C-H-I, abbreviation for Chicago, and Ward at LaxRecords.com. You can find him there. And he, as always, 
Um, you can, I'll have a link to his latest column, which kind of talks a little bit about social media and some of the topics that we discussed today. So I'll have all those links. And Lee, I can't thank you enough for, for being part of the conversation, both from the Florida side and just the general social media and referee side. So thank you very much um, for, Mike, for joining us. It's always us. a pleasure. Always a pleasure catching up with you. All right. And everybody else out there, have a great week.